In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Reformation Day. The celebration of the Reformation, there's a tongue twister for you, oftentimes is more focused on the past than the present. Because it's good and right, and even salutary, you might say, to use some church language, to appreciate and give thanks to God for the grace given to the church through Martin Luther and all of the other reformers who reclaimed the pure and simple gospel and gave comfort to untold numbers of of consciences. But I think we are not celebrating the Reformation rightly if we're only focused on what God did 500 years ago through those people. The Reformation, or at least the core idea of it, is something we celebrate every Sunday. Every time we open the Bible, every time we talk about faith, what it means to be justified. Every time we wonder about the question, how do I know that God loves me? Where can I find a kind and merciful God? That's celebrating the Reformation because that's what Luther was focused on. A mighty fortress is our God, which we just sang, has sometimes been called the battle hymn of the Reformation. In fact, I was reminded just this morning that King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, during the Thirty Years' War, had his whole army sing it before the Battle of Leipzig. Battle hymn of the Reformation. Now, this was the same guy who also famously charged into battle without his armor, saying, the Lord is my armor, and I don't think that worked out too well for Gustav Adolf II there. But Luther wrote this hymn as a hymn of comfort. Luther had health issues throughout his life. There was political strife. He was, for a long time, remaining hidden because the government sought his death for opposing the church and therefore opposing the magistrates. Luther had a lot of things pressing in on him on all sides. And oftentimes, he would gather his friends together and say, hey, let's sing A Mighty Fortress, Ein Festeburg in German. Let's sing that, because it was a comforting thing. And that psalm, or that that hymn, is based on Psalm 46. And this morning, we're going to see just where that comfort lies, why Luther chose this psalm for that hymn. The psalmist says, and if you'd like to turn back to the psalm as it's printed for you here in your bulletin, you can follow along. Because there is a definite flow here with the psalmist directing our attention out and directing our attention in. And in order to keep that straight, it might be helpful to follow along or get out a pencil and underline some things. The psalm opens almost like a a rallying speech during wartime. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalmist doesn't say, God is my refuge and strength. This isn't like a prayer of private devotion. It's a prayer written for others to join in on. First person plural language throughout. God is our refuge and strength. He's our very present help in trouble. And so right away, right from the jump, God is almighty, Creator, Redeemer, Preserver, yes. But he's also 
our refuge. He's a safe place for us. He's present in all of our troubles. And it goes on. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This imagery here is imagery of the earth falling apart. And that's kind of common in the Old Testament, specifically talking about the day of the Lord's great vengeance, the day that the Lord of hosts, you know, the capitalized Lord, Yahweh, returns for his reckoning and for a final deliverance of his people. The prophet Micah, in Micah 1, verses 2 through 4, says this, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So what's in view here is a certain future reality, the Lord's powerful cataclysmic return. And we can read about that in the book of Revelation. When the Lord Jesus returns to be known fully as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and to take his church to be with him in bliss forever. But also this speaks to the figurative falling apart of our lives. We speak this way sometimes, don't we? Like my whole world is falling apart. Or man, that guy's life is just ruined. His world came crashing in around him. We use this language like the end of the world, but to talk about a personal tragedy personal sorrows. And in all cases, according to the psalmist here, what's our response? We will not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength. He's our fortress. Okay. Now at this point, you might be thinking, great. I've heard that before. That sounds nice. But how is he our refuge and strength? It's one thing to just say that. Am I supposed to just like believe it hard enough that I start to feel differently about the way things are going in my life? Is his help an abstract thing out there that is a lot easier to talk about than it is to experience? You'd be right to ask that kind of question. Where is God to be found? Because it seems like he's often very far away from me. Or he left me once. And I don't know if he's ever coming back. Hang with me here. We'll see. Psalm 46, 4 and 5 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The scene shifts here from the raging and foaming waters, swallowing up quaking mountains, to now a peaceful river with streams coming off of it that blesses the whole area. Now, there are two places in the Old Testament where that were known as the holy habitation of the Most High. One here is kind of given away. The city of God. The city of God is one, it's another way to say Jerusalem. 
Mount Zion, God's holy hill. But there was no river that flowed into Jerusalem. So what is the psalmist talking about? Well, the other place, the other static geographical location where the presence of God rested in the Old Testament was paradise at the beginning, the Garden of Eden. And it says there in Genesis 2, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. And earlier in Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. There, the holy habitation of the Most High with the river making the city glad. So if you ever played with a Viewmaster as a kid, you know, you put the disc in and you turn the lever and the picture changes and it's two slightly different pictures of the same thing, but if you get it just right, it looks 3D. Whoa! That's what's going on here. On one side, we've got the Garden of Eden and on the other side, we've got the city of God, Jerusalem, and we're supposed to see here that it's the same thing. Where God's presence dwells is a holy place, it's a safe place, it's a peaceful place. It's paradise. Wherever Jesus is, is heaven. It is paradise. It's not just some natural paradise that happens to be away from the raging uncertainty of the rest of the world. It is wherever the peace of God is in the hearts of his chosen ones. It's because God is in the midst of her that she shall not be moved. So the answer to the question of, where is God's help found? What does God's help look like? It's here. It's hidden somewhat behind this figurative language. Perhaps the original audience, the original hearers of Psalm 46 would have caught on to this a little easier. The temple in Jerusalem is where God's help was to be found. The temple was fashioned and furnished within to call to mind the Garden of Eden. You had columns and pillars carved to look like trees. It was supposed to be like a garden paradise as you entered into it. The curtain, the the heavy, thick veil that separated the most holy place where God's presence was with the Ark of the Covenant from the holy place and the rest was embroidered with images of a cherubim with a sword. The very same thing that stood at the boundary of the garden after Adam and Eve were cast out saying, you cannot come in here. This is where God's presence is. God's help for his people isn't then and never has been since an abstract, ephemeral concept that we just have to think about or appropriate by faith, willing ourselves to believe it hard enough. It's been tied to a specific place in a specific time. Now, that's not too helpful for us in 2022, in the Western Hemisphere, because that temple in Jerusalem, even if we could easily access it, is no more. We'll see in a moment, though, that we don't need to lose hope on that account. Psalm 46.6 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. From the perspective of Jerusalem, now we're inside the city of God, the psalmist directs our gaze back out over the walls, to the wild and chaotic earth. Nations rage, kingdoms totter. You know, like there's instability. There's uncertainty. There's chaos. There's a restless roiling for power and wealth and status. And to get it, they muster armies. They muster 
espionage and deceit and manipulation, tyranny and all the rest. And in the face of all of that, what does God do? He utters his voice and the earth melts. In the face of all of this world's might, God's word is so powerful that one little word, right, like we sang about in the hymn, one little word shall fell him. One little word causes the utter ruin of all who would stand opposed. The psalm goes on in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is kind of like the refrain, the chorus of the song. And at this point, you can almost feel like singing along. Okay, I'm starting to catch on to this. Yeah, a mighty fortress is our God. The psalmist says, Behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the chariots with fire. We get one more look here at the power of God's word against this world's forces. Desolations, stopping wars. Does he stop these wars by a peace treaty? By a summit with talks and some kind of diplomatic solution? No. No, he destroys the instruments of war. God doesn't just overcome rebellious humans and the forces of Satan. He breaks their power and saps their strength by his word. His powerful, creative word. And then he says, God breaks into this psalm to speak to us. He says, be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. And here we arrive at what is maybe the most well-known verse from this psalm. Many times it's presented as kind of a gentle reply to anxiety, like, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Like, almost as if someone would say it to you, oh, it's, it's all right, you can relax. But in the context of the scene already painted for us here, I think we'd be right to still feel somewhat uneasy. The psalmist says, look at the desolations wrought on the earth by God. Like, look at the violence that God has done. This is not a peaceful thing. This is like, uh, I mean, look at the war zone. Look at the aftermath. What happens to those who oppose God? We as God's people are in Jerusalem where God lives with us. The city is our fortress because it's where God is, and we're safe. We won't be moved, though the earth melts, but the earth did melt. There's a big difference in your experience, depending on which side of this wall you're on. This Hebrew verb, harpu, if we're going to translate it as be still, then we need to hear it as be still, instead of, oh, hush now, it's okay. This isn't like, oh, relax, you know, like you're rocking a baby. Be still, you know, doing the rock that parents know. You know, you're shifting your weight from one foot to the other. This is like, um, I don't know. What what I keep thinking of is like a police officer with a gun drawn, the tone of voice there. Stop. Show me your hands, right? That kind of thing. And this is a different context, but the force of this is be still. It's like, let go, desist, knock it off. Not be still, 
And this one word here is law to those who oppose God. It's a warning. It's a curb against evil. It's a promise that opposition to him ends in death and destruction. Psalm 46.11 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And this one word is also gospel. Because to those who believe, to those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, this word, be still, means I am your God and there is none greater than me. You don't have to hold on so tightly to your doubts, to your anxieties. I'm not up here telling you the cure for anxiety is just to believe harder. I don't think you'll ever hear me say that. But it is true that there is none greater than God. And so in the face of the fact that God is almighty, that God is love, that God, Jesus Christ, gave his life for us, I think that ought to mean something about our doubts, our anxieties, our cares. Now, where is God's help to be found today? What does it look like? Well, remember back in the Old Testament, it was abundant and plentiful in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve threw that away. And then this question was like the banner over the rest of the Old Testament. Where is God? Where is his help? How can we find him? How do we know that he's for us? Living water flowed in Eden, and the temple in Jerusalem was where God's presence rested in a permanent way. But today, where is God's help to be found? Jesus Christ, who is living water, who is the true temple where the fullness of God dwelt bodily. John 4, 14 has Jesus saying this to this woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You want to talk about a river whose streams make glad? And in Revelation 21, it says, He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus is and gives the water of life. And also in John, chapter 2, this is after Jesus cleanses the temple. He's upset that people are changing, exchanging currencies and selling, and it's, it's become like a, a, a merchant's warehouse in the temple. And Jesus cleanses all that out of there, and it says here, the Jews said to him, in John 2, 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, Jesus, who told you you could do this? What authority do you have? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's the temple that he built up again after three days in the tomb. Because the fullness of God dwelled bodily in Jesus, he was the true temple. The true seat of God's presence was not a place but a person. And through baptism into Christ, we also become the place where God's presence dwells. Not just a place, not one person, but a people.
One commentator I was reading this week puts it like this. As the sanctuary was in the midst of Jerusalem, so the church, the people of God, gathers around the word that God offers us in the preaching of the gospel and in the sacraments of holy baptism and holy communion. We come together around these means of grace because it is here that God is readily found as a help in times of trouble. What does God's help look like? You might not be surprised to hear this. You might go, oh, Pastor Grant, again? God's help looks like baptism. God's help looks like Holy Communion. God's help looks like being here to hear God's word proclaimed to you. The good news of your forgiveness. The good news that God has loved you and chosen you before the foundation of the earth to live forever with him. That God delights in you. That is very present help in time of trouble, is it not? This author continues. He says, It is from him, Jesus, that springs of life-giving water flow. He was raised up from the dead at the break of day. Right? God will help her when morning dawns. When was Jesus resurrected? Early, early in the morning at the break of day. And he will raise us also at the dawn of the new and eternal day. And these words bring us to the church where we gather around his life-giving word and sacraments and receive his spirit to help us as we wait for the city and the garden at the end of time, where God himself dwells in the midst of a people who walk by his light and see him face to face. If you look in Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see that the end of our story here looks a lot like the Garden of Eden and the city of the New Jerusalem. Paradise recreated and restored. There's a river of life in the new creation. God is our help and fortress in Jesus Christ and in the church. That's how he is present for us in times of trouble. Every time you gather around God's word, you enter the mighty fortress. Every time you pray with a friend, another believer, you are in the mighty fortress. Every time you take communion, you're strengthened and made glad. When you enter into the family of God through the waters of baptism as a baby or as an adult, you are brought into the mighty fortress. God's power and strength for you is not far away somewhere. This is the good news that Luther was so excited about 500 years ago. It's good news for us today. God is not far off, angry at us, scowling down from a perch high up in the heavens. He is near to us in his word, in prayer, proclamation, and praise. And through this, the kingdom is ours forever. Amen.